Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard's Deputy Editor Digital, Katie Atkinson. Hi, Katie. Hey, Keith. How are you? Great. Well, you know, the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be talking with Billboard Senior Contributor Gil Kaufman about the 25th anniversary of Pearl Jam's music video for Jeremy. Gil recently wrote a profile about Trevor Wilson, who played Jeremy in the video, who tragically died last year of drowning at 36 years old. The guys will be talking about Gil's process of putting the story together, as well as their own memories of Jeremy on MTV and how it holds up 25 years later. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. Okay, so Jeremy, which was from Pearl Jam's debut album 10, was the band's first top 10 hit on the Alternative Songs airplay chart. And it reached number five in 1992. It was actually the first of so far 19 top 10s for the group on the tally. And the single earned the act its first Grammy Award nomination for Best Hard Rock Performance with Vocals. That's a mouthful. Does that still exist? I don't <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so either. Think so. Uh, the video for Jeremy was all over MTV back in 92. And, and the clip's wide popularity helped 10 spend 100 weeks inside the top 40 of the Billboard 200 chart. So far, the 10 album has sold a whopping 10.3 million copies in the U.S., according to Nielsen Music. So let's hear all about Pearl Jam's Jeremy on Coming Around Again. Hello and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast talking about milestone anniversaries being celebrated in the music world. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the 25th anniversary of Pearl Jam's iconic Jeremy video. And this video, uh, you know, it made the band superstars at the time and it sent their debut album 10 on its way to, you know, mega blockbuster status. It makes for a lot of kind of sort of bittersweet memories today and the, the, the saddest one of all of those 
uh, is one that Billboard senior contributor Gil Kaufman wrote about uh, recently in, in a profile of Trevor Wilson. Uh, and Trevor was the kid who played Jeremy in the, in the music video, uh, and he actually drowned last year at the age of 36 off the coast of Puerto Rico. Uh, and Gil's on the line now to talk about it with us. Uh, so thanks, thanks for coming on, Gil. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. So before we get into your piece, which was really just an amazing, awesome read, uh, anybody who hasn't read it yet, hopefully you have, but if you haven't, you got to check that out. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I just want to kind of talk background on the video and, and, and kind of get your own general memories of it. So you know, this was, I think it was the third video released off 10 after Even Flow and Alive, which both had videos, but they were, they were mostly live videos, basically. This was the first true music video I think that Pearl Jam ever did. Uh, you know, it had a it had a much bigger budget. It was directed by Mark Pellington, who was you know an MTV alum. He had done videos for U two and PM Dawn, people like that. Uh, and it had a, a very memorable storyline. So, uh, what what were your initial impressions of this video when you saw it? You know, back in nineteen ninety two. What 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 memories do you have of it? Uh, did you think it was cool? Did you like Pearl Jam at the time? Um, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Um, you know, I was a child of grunge. Like I I came of age at a time when. I was fully immersed in grunge. I sure. saw Pearl Jam on their first tour, their first major tour in a tiny club, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but much like uh, Pellington and John Norris, a uh, former MTV uh, colleague of mine who also spoke to me for the story, I was the Nirvana guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I firmly was behind Nirvana. I didn't, I didn't dislike Pearl Jam, but I didn't really get them at first. It, wasn't, it didn't speak to me in the same way that Nirvana did. Uh, I do remember the the Jeremy video because that was a time when people still watched MTV and and videos were a big deal. And I do remember um, being even then kind of transfixed by Eddie Vedder in the video more so than than Trevor. Uh, I just remember thinking, you know, that that is a really intense guy. You know, as intense as I thought Kurt was, um, I, I definitely got that Eddie was was a pretty um, committed intense guy from that video so i do i do remember the video from the time and they talk about it today it seems like this was just the biggest video you know of of its era basically when it came out uh, do you remember kind of being inundated with it to that extent was it was it really just on like every hour on the hour i you know i don't remember i was i was in college then and so i was busy doing other things so i wasn't watching a lot of mtv but sorry to talking hear that. to john norris um John had a show called Hanging with MTV at the time, which was a precursor to TRL. And John said that when the, when the video came out, it was on the countdown every day for months and months and months. And it it is given credit for being kind of one of the catalysts. You know, the record came out, 10 came out in 91, but by 93, um, you know, by 92, when, when this video was shot and released, it really was the thing that kind of propelled Pearl Jam I think to a whole other level. So I think whether or not I was watching it, clearly some people were watching it and, and the song was gaining traction and the video helped the band really become kind of the superstars. They, they ran away from being for most of the rest of their career. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it was, it was probably ubiquitous at the time. I just don't recall. Yeah. (laughs) And I I remember, you know, I first came of MTV watching age in about 1996 and the first time I saw the video was with my brother, and he said he, he told me something like, "Oh, well, you, you have to watch this video because they only show it, you know, once a year. It's, it's, it's like a special video that they only, you know, they only pull out for for really special occasions." And that very clearly wasn't the case because I, I saw the video probably, you know, even five years later, it was on, you know, once every couple of weeks, uh, once every month or so, I would see it, uh, and it, it definitely felt like one of the canonical music videos at that time. And as you know, MTV was starting to starting to starting to round into its own canon. 
because it had been around for 10 to 15 years at that point. And, you know, whenever they would do best video of all time countdowns, best videos of the 90s countdowns, Jeremy was always top five, yeah. top 10. Uh, and sure. c- certainly at the time, uh, you know, it, it swept the VMAs in 1993, uh, which we, 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 you know, you talk about in your story. Uh, and, you know, it, it basically turned this kid into a superstar. Uh, Trevor Wilson, you know, the, he was getting recognized on the street and you know, people were coming up to him. Probably people that didn't even have much of a frame of reference for, for Pearl Jam, but they knew the video. And, and, you know, for, for sure. And, and what's interesting about that is I've actually talked to a number of these people over the years. You know, I've talked to the B-Girl from the Blind Melon video, <laughs> and, I, and I talked to Spencer, the kid who was on the cover of the Nirvana sure. album. You know, it's rare to become a breakout star and not be the, the, the actual, you know, end member of the video. And in doing this story, what I found out was Trevor became somebody everybody recognized. You know, grunge mm-hmm. was so big at that time. And he, everywhere he went, people, you know, would recognize him according to his mom and dad and, and some other people who knew him at the time. And, and it was a weird thing because he was this 12-year-old kid who, on the one hand, had aspirations to being an actor. He had gone to the Lee Strasberg Institute um, on the weekends to, to study acting. He had headshots. His mom was a, a caterer to the stars, essentially. She was a macrobiotic cook who had... Michelle Pfeiffer and, and, and uh, Phil Donahue and a bunch of really famous uh, celebrities as clients. And so he he was exposed to the Hollywood world, but he became instantly, you know, I mean, literally overnight, um, it, he became a star. And uh, it was a weird thing because that was not really something that happened out of music videos. You know, movies, certainly, commercials, TV, whatever, but it was rare for a star to be minted out of a music video. Yeah, and it kind of shows you the power that MTV had at the time. You know, that, that sure. they kind of make these breakout stars out of you know people that are just basically supporting characters in Pearl Jam and Blind Melon videos. Uh, and like if you compare it to today, you know, there, there still are iconic videos, but they're released by artists like uh, you know Kanye or Lady Gaga or Beyonce, and those stars are always these stars. You know, I, I can't think of another example from this decade basically of somebody who wasn't the artist in the video becoming a breakout star from the video. That's a pretty rare thing, but it just shows you yeah, the kind of the kind of influence that MTV had on the culture in the early nineties. And no, I mean MTV was where you went to to you know to see your favorite artists and to also learn about, you know, what they were up to and, you know, now you have viral stars like the Backpack Kid who was with <laughs> Katy Perry on, on Saturday Night Live, but it's a much lower level right. in some ways of, of stardom. I mean, this kid, one of the great, really interesting stories I got from um, the dad, you know, uh, Trevor's dad, Jim, was, he was on Love Lines, which is a show some people might remember. It was Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla. It was a call-in show, mostly, you know, teenagers uh, asking really embarrassing sex questions <laughs> that they were afraid to ask their parents. I remember it well. And he sure. went on shortly after the video came out, and he was in it. And and the dad said that, you know, women and girls were, were propositioning him. He was 12, 13 years old. And he was like, what the hell is going on? You know, this is bizarre. Um, you know, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. And, and you know, regardless of that, the family moved from New York to L.A. so he could go and kind of be in the center of things. He went to Beverly Hills High. And, you know, from all, from all I could tell, he kind of fit in pretty well there. But as soon as he started going on auditions and doing stuff, I think the amount of attention quickly made him realize this isn't what I want. Yeah. You know, this is too much. And he, he kind of stopped, you know, really going out on auditions and trying out for stuff 
pretty quickly after the video um, got huge. So, so just going back to like uh, kind of the roots of this article. Sure, uh, sure. And I know uh, you know you and I were talking about this uh, a couple months ago because you know we we knew that the 25th anniversary of this video was coming up and we wanted to do something to commemorate it. Uh, and I had heard, I remember I was, I was listening to the Celebration Rock podcast with Stephen Hyden, who was actually a guest on this on this own podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he was interviewing Mark Pellington about the Jeremy video. And Mark Pellington kind of let it casually slip that Trevor Wilson had died recently, that, that you know, he, as a as a kid, as a, a no longer a kid, basically in his late 30s, uh, he was somewhere in Puerto Rico and he, and he just you know, off the coast and he, he drowned trying to swim out there. And uh, you know, uh, you know, listening to the podcast, uh, Stephen Hyden was kind of taken aback by it. And listening at home, I was definitely taken aback because I hadn't heard anything about that. And I thought that, you know, it's, it, it was a big enough story that you know, certainly news of that would have gotten out. And then you and I started to look into it uh, for this upcoming anniversary, and we really couldn't find anything about it. Uh, but then it's, it's you know, I think we we got in touch with the cousin who got you in touch with the mother, and that kind of got you going, and you sort of took it from there. Uh, what, what was it like talking to his family about uh, about his passing? And, and did you get the sense that that anybody had really talked to them about this before? Well, I, and and you know, I really credit you, frankly, with with encouraging me. I was ready to just do a you know an anniversary story about the video, and I talked to Pellington, and he talked. You know, he gave me great stories about the video that were in another story that I did today. That was kind of a straight retelling of the video shoot, but once you brought up that podcast, you know, I, I talked to him again and he went into a little bit more detail about, uh, Trevor's passing. And then, you know, you and I kind of decided, well, let's, let's find out what, you know, what this is about. And so the cousin got me in touch with the dad, Jim, uh, who is, uh, I found out and speaking to him terminally ill. And a year later still had a very hard time talking about his son's passing. He was, from what the mom told me, estranged from his son, you know, he had had kind of a rocky relationship with Trevor over the years. Um, and he really at first was, was having difficulty even talking about it. So we were on the phone for about an hour and then the second hour, he kind of started opening up, telling me some stories about Trevor, telling me some really kind of poignant, um, interesting, you know, details about the video shoot, like, he overheard somebody saying, you know, the kid has to really have emotion and has to kind of yell. So he actually pinched Trevor on the leg to get him a little amped up. And Trevor was like, what are you doing? You know, like it was, you know, and, and all these things that he kind of did to get Trevor in the mind space of, of shooting the video. Um, what was interesting about talking to the dad and, and Mark mentioned it. And then also the cinematographer uh, who I spoke to Tom was Trevor was really sick the day of the shoot. And so it had asthma as a kid and, and, uh, the day of the shoot, he just wasn't feeling well. So the fact that he wasn't feeling well actually ended up being the thing that sold him sure. to Mark and to Tom, uh, which I thought was fascinating. You know, here, here, this kid's trying out, it's the biggest audition of his life and he feels like crap. And the fact that he was kind of withdrawn and sickly looking actually made, you know, after looking at 200 tapes, Mark and Tom were sitting at, at, at Mark's house in LA and they got to this Trevor tape and they were like, that's it. That's the kid. Like they knew immediately. And, and, you know, I thought that was, it's one of those getting discovered at the, at the soda bar kind of stories that you hear mm -hmm. in LA and you hear about people, but it's, it's really a fascinating story how literally this kid one out of hundreds was discovered because 
of the fact that he wasn't feeling well that day. And so talking to his dad, you know, I really got a sense of kind of the story around him auditioning for the video. And then once I spoke to his mother, uh, Diane, I really started to get a sense of who this person was. Diane also, you know, she was very, very close to her son. She, they traveled all the time. He spent most of his time with her. Um, and she still goes, you know, she said he was a huge literature buff. So there were 400 paperback books that she had given away over the past year. And then another 400 she's kind of going through. And she started telling me stories about him. And so in, in just, you know, that one little kind of um, clue that, that you sent me from the cousin, I started getting more and more people who were willing to talk about him, including Tom, the cinematographer, who actually stayed close with Trevor. And as I spoke to them, this mosaic kind of started coming together, this story of what is really a fascinating person who had an opportunity to be one thing and decided that they weren't interested in it. You know, most people don't do that. Most people get an opportunity to be, you know, a superstar or to be an actor or to be whatever, to have a little bit of fame, especially now, grab it with both hands. And here you have a kid who immediately was like, no. And the thing that's interesting to me is the band kind of did the same thing yeah. shortly after. You know, he he kind of presaged like what they ended up doing, which is they didn't do another video for six years after Jeremy because mm -hmm. they thought, we need to put the brakes on this. It's too big, you yeah. know? And so he did kind of a similar thing in his life. So the onion kind of started unpeeling once that cousin's tweet, you know, led to the dad, which led to the mom, which led to, you know, Tom and, and Mark. And then eventually I also spoke to this guy, Anthony, who was one of his best friends who really filled in the the final days of his life and kind of what he, what he was like as an adult, which was, you know, if you read the article, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, the the thing that really separates uh, Trevor's story for me than from other you know stories of, of people that were in a similar position to him early in life is that you know usually when you hear about kids stars they they kind of follow one or two paths they they either you know they make the successful transition to adulthood and they you know they become you know stars and you, you remember them from when they were younger but it's not necessarily the uh, the impression that sticks in your mind you know as they go through the rest of their career uh, or they flame out kind of spectacularly and, you know, every little thing that they do becomes tabloid fodder and, you know, they, they appear on reality shows 10 years later. They write tell-all biographies, you know, either they become Justin Timberlake or they become Macaulay Culkin, basically. Right. I uh, was just going to say it's either Corey Feldman or Justin. Well, there you, know? you go. Uh, but this kid didn't do either. He he found a third way and he seems to be one of the truly rare stories of a kid star just retreating from the spotlight and, and staying there and, I don't know if nobody really tried to find him or if he just did such a good job of kind of staying out and, and no, he came along at such a time that that was still an option. That was pre-Twitter, pre-social media, pre-kind of 24-hour news cycle sort of thing. So maybe it was easier in those days to kind of say, you know, I don't want to do this and actually not do it. But it's pretty crazy to me that he goes on to have this incredible life. You know, he, he works for the United Nations. Uh, you know, he travels all over the world and, and he – he never has to really answer for having been Jeremy. Like, it, 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 what what kind of effect do you think that the video actually had on him? Do you, do you think that it was something that he actively tried to run from, or or was it something that you know he kind of like looks back on, or you know he looked back on as like, wow, that was a crazy kid experience that I had, but now I'm this totally different person. My my, you know, one of my favorite stories really was a story Anthony told me. He said, you know, he met Trevor when Trevor was around 19, and Anthony was in his late 20s, and 
they, you know, I got the sense that, that, that Trevor grew up as a child of privilege in some ways. He went to some mm-hmm. fancy schools, you know, Beverly Hills High. He went to a fancy prep school in New York. You know, I, I got the sense that he was a, a, you know, his mom at least, or maybe both his parents were of means. And so he lived uh, a life that, that I think a lot of us don't really know about. But the story Anthony told just blew my mind. You know, they were at a club in New York. Uh, Sasha and Digweed were were a uh, popular DJ duo at the time. They were playing that night, and um, they played a remix. I don't know if they knew he was there or what happened, but they played a remix of Jeremy. This was 1999, and Trevor's friends put him up on their shoulder, and they kind of paraded him around, and everybody started like looking at him and pointing and being like, that's the kid from the video. And they were like, one of the things that Anthony said was, he would never have done that of his own volition. Right, he was yeah. a guy who would never call me. You know, I said, what a great pickup line. I'm the kid from here, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, like and, I hasn't, hasn't the, uh, the kid from Nevermind has used being the baby yeah, on oh, Nevermind cover sure. as a pickup line? And yeah, Anthony said he would never willfully offer that information to anybody who he ever met. That was never his opening line, I'm the kid from Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating because even if he never did anything else, there seemed to be something about him you know, Tom told me the story about how when, when he was still a teenager, he would go visit Trevor. And, you know, Tom Tom was in his 40s then. He was a grown man going to visit this teenager. And he said they would have tea and they would sit at Diane's house. And, and Trevor would just regale him with stories about, you know, all these books he was reading. And admittedly, there were books Tom should have read in college but just didn't because, you know, he wasn't a book guy. Mm-hmm. But, like, he was a kid who was really an intellectual. And I think that's part of what made it easy for him to just shrink away from it and not need it is that he had this internal life. He had all these things he was interested in, literature and traveling and, and working for the UN. And he had this opportunity as, you know, like I said, as a, someone who, who appears to have lived, you know, in, in somewhat privileged to, to not have to lean on that. So he didn't need it and he clearly didn't want it. So I think that combination of factors made it so he could walk away and, you know, to to the day that he died, you know, according to Anthony, it was never something that he used or never something that he kind of paraded around. Uh, my friend used to call it spraying it around. He never sprayed it around. <laughs> you know, he yeah. he really didn't have to. And so I think that's what allowed him to have this whole other life that nobody ever commented on. And one of the things you and I talked about, which which we found fascinating, was when we started digging I couldn't find a single story about his death. I couldn't find a single report on on the entire internet even about, you know, I found like one obituary from upstate New York where, where his dad has a place, and that's literally the only mention even of his death. And so I think the fact that he was able to transition into adulthood and never once tried to, you know, he never did interviews, he never did podcasts, he didn't do... Uh, you know, club appearances where he got paid to show up and be the Jeremy kid, you know, like none of the kind of cheesy things that viral stars do now or, or semi celebs do now because he never did that. Nobody ever thought to follow up with him. And if they did, they couldn't find him or they never found him. And so that's one of the reasons why there was almost no comment on his, on his death until Mark mentioned it on that podcast. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and it's almost kind of a beautiful tribute to the way he lived his life that that 
his death was able to go under the radar like that, that, you know, you didn't see this cavalcade of headlines being like kid from Pearl Jam's Jeremy dead at 36, you know? Right. That, that, and, and I'm glad that like the first time that we actually, you know, tell the story is, is in your profile, which is, you know, very, very nicely fleshed out and humanizing and really, really goes into what made this kid a special person as well as just being, you know, this kind of flash in the pan star. And, you, and what's you, interesting, what's interesting about it also is that it kind of jives with Pearl Jam yeah. as well. I mean, unfortunately I wasn't able to speak to them for the story. Um, but I've worked with Pearl Jam a lot, you know, over the last 20, 25 years. And their organization is one of the, you know, it reminds me of REM's organization when they were in their prime. It's, it's the most, you know, righteous, together, really above board organization for any band you'll ever really deal with. I mean, they're really, they're nice people. They're fair people. They're, they're really, they're kind people. And, and, you know, his mom, Diane, told me like, they extended an invitation to him anytime he wanted to see them. When they came to New York, he was welcome to do it. Free tickets for life. And he took them up on it. Usually like his mom said at the last minute and they always accommodated him. You know, they were always really sweet to him. And if he had time, you know, Eddie would hang out with them or one of the guys would hang out with them backstage. So, you know, I, the way he lived his life is actually strangely very similar to the way Pearl Jam conducts their business. You know, they don't, they, you know, they don't, do a lot of interviews they don't you know they don't do a lot of flashy things they just kind of do what they do yeah it seems like they were kind of kindred spirits in a weird way like a, yeah, I think a different sure. a different band probably you know they would have invited trevor to the concerts but they would have tried you know either paraded him on stage like for one they played right. jeremy or they would have pointed him out in the audience and drawn a lot of unnecessary attention to him but you know you, you can even see it you know uh, we, we talked about you mentioned it in your piece that uh you know that the kid uh you know, Trevor, when he was younger, he accompanies the band on stage at the 93 VMAs when they win Video of the Year and, and pretty much every other award imaginable. And he doesn't seem comfortable being there, but neither does the band themselves. You know, they're they're very much in, a, in their like anti mainstream glare sort of phase of their career where they don't really want to be at this award show either, accepting all these Prime awards. I'm Eddie Vedder is what I call it. You know, <laughs> I mean, Eddie is just you can't judge art, you know, like it's everything you expect from you know, that angsty Eddie Vedder of that time. For sure. And, you know, here's here they bring up Trevor, and he stands with them when they take video of the year. Eddie raises his hand and says, you know, Trevor lives, and, and here's this kid who's just like, what am I doing here? And and my favorite story from that night is actually one that John Norris told, which is, you know, I asked John, what do you remember? He goes, well, you know what? I went to a, I went to an after party, and this is one of those only in Hollywood kind of stories. He's sitting at a table next to Stevie Nicks and across from him is Trevor and Eddie. And Eddie's like introducing Trevor to people and Trevor's kind of like, you know, head down saying, hi, how you doing? And John's asking him all these questions. How was doing the video? And Trevor's like, it was fun, you know, and he didn't, you know, he, he didn't really, he didn't know how to schmooze because he's 13, sure. but like Stevie Nicks is chatting him up. And I just thought, what a great, you know, what a great scene. Here this kid is, plucked from obscurity, and he's sitting at a table with Eddie Vedder and, and you know, Stevie Nicks. And he's, I don't know, what John couldn't remember what the restaurant was, but I'm sure it was some fancy restaurant in L.A. And, and that, you know, that's the last time probably any of those people saw him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not Eddie, Eddie, but I've seen him over the years. But you know what I mean? Like, it was just such a, fu such a funny, like, weird moment. Um and I think it was kind of emblematic of what a fluke that was and how it was just this real, it was like a firework, you know, it just mm -hmm. went up and then it was gone.
so going back to the video itself, because uh, yeah. you did write a, a really good second piece uh, about the anniversary that, that went up today, sure. which you talked to Mark Pellington and and Tom Richmond, the cinematographer, and a couple other people, just about the video itself, kind of separate from Trevor's story. Uh, and one of the things that I found really interesting in it, and I didn't know myself, was that there was actually an original version of this video, pre-Mark Pellington, pre-even the song being released as a single, but there was just right. this this uh, version that I guess they, they kind of filmed uh, on, you know, on, a, on a weekend getaway or whatever, uh, directed by somebody who you know doesn't have a, nearly the resume that Pellington does, clearly on a much smaller budget. Uh, and they they thought to themselves, oh, well, maybe this will be enough because we don't really like doing music videos anyway. Uh, but then you know Mark Pellington had this kind of come to Jesus moment, and he decided, you know, know what, I want to go for this. I want to work with this band on this, and I want to make this this you know best video ever, basically. Uh, so, what, what are your impressions of that original video? Like, how do you think that so would work? Yeah, I mean, the original video is is in, of a piece with the other two live videos. I mean, it's it's moody, it's kind of grungy. It's you know, frankly, it's not shot very well. I don't think it's kind of you know, it it it's just it's a pretty, it seems kind of low budge, honestly. I mean, no disrespect to the, to the director, but mm-hmm. it's it's not a very compelling video. I mean, it's the band kind of performing a little bit more, maybe acting a little bit more. It's not a straight performance video, but there's a little bit of a narrative, kind of, but you don't really know what it is. And so it's not a great video. And I think what happened is, according to Mark, his producer came to him and said, hey, here's this opportunity to work with this band. He showed him the you know the video and he played him the song and, and Mark was like yeah that's a cool song but you know I don't I don't need to do this um, but then he started sitting down with it and really listening to the song and his father uh, was was very ill with dementia at the time and Mark was working on this movie about his dad about the fact that he couldn't communicate with his dad anymore and so something about that emotional pull of not being able to speak to his dad, that, that kind of anger at things that had happened when he was a kid and, and now not being able to literally not being able to speak to his dad about it compelled him to talk to Eddie about the song after he listened to it a bunch of times. And then once he talked to Eddie and Eddie kind of described the real story behind it and then kind of his personal connection to it, um, Pellington was like, I got to do this, you know, like I, I got to do this. And then he said, he sat down and he wrote like, this ridiculously elaborate treatment um, for what he, you know, a lot of video directors will say was was more of a mini movie and not just a music video. It was like a small film that he wanted to make. Yeah, and definitely. So, you know, he he wrote this treatment. He showed it to Eddie and the band, and they were like, "Yes." And so, part of that treatment was that it was going to be a narrative video. It was not going to be another, you know, uh, alive or another even flow. And the band was fine with that. In fact, the band was like, we don't need to be in it at all. So we don't need to be. And he's like, cool, because I was yeah. thinking maybe it wouldn't be. So in talking to Tom, Tom said, you know, they got $400,000 for the video, which was a ridiculous amount of money for video then, for any kind of video. And um, the guy from the label, somebody from the label said, listen, we'll give you this money. You don't have to put the band in the video if you don't want to, because that seems to be your you know, artsy-fartsy plan. But why don't you go shoot them anyway? And we just have it in the can. You know, it's like one of those Hollywood wink, wink, nod, nod things where they ask you to do something to make it seem like it's your idea. And then, they, you know, at mm-hmm. the end, they're going to yank it from you and, and put it in there anyway. So, you know, Pellington goes to London, shoots the band on a soundstage for a day and is just blown away by 
better. You know, like second take, Eddie just absolutely blows his mind and he's like, got a dilemma now. He's like, you know, crap, I've got this incredible footage of the band that doesn't really fit into my fancy schmancy narrative that I was going to do. Um, so he comes back and he's got to figure out, okay, now I've got this kid and the story and now I've got Eddie just veins bulging, you know, like killing it. What am I going to do? And so that's the origin story of how it turned into this incredible, you know, it's kind of a parallel story. If you watch the video, Eddie is really the kid and the kid is Eddie, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in different ways. And they're both so intense that there was no way that Pellington couldn't use all that footage. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've had to watch the video. I don't, you know, I don't even know how many times in preparation for these two articles. Uh, you know, Comparing it to your initial impressions of it 25 years ago, do you think it holds up? Like, are, are there parts of it that have dated badly? Or do, do you think that you know, kind of the combination of Vetter and Wilson, their performances, does it, does it really you know, still sell it as, as a compelling mini-movie? I'll tell you what, and, and Pellington told me this himself. He said, you know, I was 30 when I made it. I'm 55 now. And he was recently driving around L.A. and the song came on and he was like, holy crap, is this a great song? So I think the song itself, because the song is so, you know, powerful and phenomenal, I think that helps the video stand up. There are elements of it. And John Norris said this, too, like the the kind of montage cut up stuff at the beginning, mm-hmm. which was kind of a uh, that was a little bit of a carryover from a show that that Pellington did for MTV called Buzz, which I shared with you today. It was just an insane pastiche kind of cut up, you know, William Burroughs kind of show that made zero sense. Yeah, I'm not super... surprised we're talking about Jeremy today and not this Yeah, this super interesting to look at. Like, that kind of stuff at the beginning of the video, I understand why he did it because he explained it to me and it was really his way of kind of nodding to, literally nodding to the era that they were in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the times that they were in. But I think once that stuff kind of goes away, the the footage of 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 Trevor in the woods and and drawing and with the par- kind of standing between the parents and then cut in with the really close ups of Eddie and the harsh lighting. I mean, it's a beautiful video. I mean, I you know I hadn't watched it probably in twenty years, and I think even now it it stands up as a really a really singular piece of art from that time. I mean, you think about some of the some of the best grunge videos, and I think. That heart-shaped box, you know, smells like Teen Spirit. Wood. There's a handful of them that that really matter and that still are great pieces of art on their own. And I, and I do think it stands up. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really it's a really elegant video, and I think it's an important video, if only because, and I'm sure you're going to get to this. It's also there's a controversy behind it that I had forgotten about, and that has actually only grown in the years since. Yeah, and before we get to that, I just want to say, like, I, sure, I, sure. I do totally agree with, uh, you know, with your general assessment of the video. And I, I think the most important thing for a video to do, uh, you know, from in, whether the '90s or today, is just kind of create those indelible images that stick in your mind 10, 20 yeah. years later. And like, you know, I hadn't, I also hadn't watched this video in a very long time before. You know, we, we kind of sat down to work on these things, but you know, I still remember, you know, Trevor, you know, sticking his head into the into that wolf cutout painting. Or yeah, yeah, him yelling at his parents while they're kind of sitting there frozen, or him, you know, with the arms in the V in front of the flames, and and there's so many images like that, and even even stuff in the collage, like uh, I could I could have you know recited you know the 64 degrees and cloudy and an affluent suburb, like all, right, all those, right. those phrases that just kind of flash on the screen, and they really stick with you, and and you know usually a video is lucky to have one or two of those moments, but Jeremy has maybe dozens. It's it's a pretty 
pretty profoundly visual uh, video. And for sure, uh, I just want to say that if you know if you're listening and you do think that the video like kind of comes off as cheesy nowadays, like you got to see that original version of the video because it yeah. is it is a world <laughs> apart. Uh, you know, right. there's, there's scenes of like Eddie headbanging and scenes of him yeah. kind of miming, putting a gun to his head. And, and there are also just like shots, lingering shots of a gun. And it, yeah. it's, it's so on the nose and it's so cheesy. And it really yeah. gives you an appreciation for, you know, what a subtle and, and kind of artistic thing that Mark Pellington did with this other video. Uh, sure. but, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the, certainly the thing about the video that generated the most discussion uh, when it came out and years later, and especially, you know, uh, at the end of the 90s with the, the, the Columbine massacre and a number of other kind of school shootings that, that really dominated the news uh, was the, the video's ending, which uh, originally as filmed by Mark Pellington uh, had Jeremy, you know, he, he strolls into the classroom, he throws the, you know, throws an apple to the teacher and then he sticks a gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. Uh, and you can see it fairly explicitly in the original version. But MTV didn't want to air that for sort of obvious reasons. And sure. so they, uh, you know, they kind of settled on a compromise edit where you see Jeremy, he, like, he stands in front of the class, he, he raises something and he closes his eyes and, he, and he, you, you can see him kind of clenching. And then the last shot of the video, or at least the last shot in the classroom, is a shot of the kids in the classroom kind of reacting to what, whatever he did, which you never actually right. see. And they've got blood on their shirts and their images are kind of frozen. And I, I remember having numerous debates about this back in the day. Does Jeremy kill himself? Or does he shoot the rest of the kids in the class? And you know, right. from the original and, video, and I think, and and I think that the thing that the you know the ambiguity of that clearly uh, rankles Pellington to this mm-hmm. day. He's so angry about it still because at some point, you know, Columbine and and Sung Lee Cho at, at you know Virginia Tech, like those kind of got blamed on Jeremy. You know, they kind of among uh, other rock and roll you know, factors, but yeah, Jeremy right, right. But I mean, a lot of a lot of those, you know, when you dig into those stories, there's a New Yorker piece that that Mark actually sent me about the influence of Jeremy on school shooters mm-hmm. and how they all, a lot of them mention it, you know, as kind of a, a blueprint. And so, what made Mark so angry was that ambiguity, and and you know, he he ended up doing kind of an anti-gun uh, video later on in life to kind of you know, make it clear that he's not somebody who, who, you know, supports, you know, the, the, these ideas that people have kind of thrust on him because of the way the video was edited. And, you know, having worked at MTV, I know their standards and practices. I know that, you know, showing guns is, is, you know, in any way other than let's say in, in an Nirvana video where they're kind of very ambiguous mm-hmm. and nobody's holding them, they're just floating is not a thing. And so, you know, that, that aspect of the video is, is really interesting because it it has a really dark legacy as well, one that's completely the unintended consequence of this edit. Um, and, and, you know, Mark and I had a really long discussion about that, and, and he clearly, uh, to this day, is, is, you know, a little bit upset about it and, and feels like it, it ruined in some ways the message he was trying to send. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate because I actually think that the ambiguous ending, just from a, from a filmic standpoint, I think it's actually a better ending. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> be, especially because, like, you, know, you know, I'd seen this video so many times before I saw the uncensored version. I think they, you know, they had to show it at like 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night right. on MTV or something like that. Uh, and just actually seeing him put the gun in the mouth and, and presumably squeeze the trigger, uh, it felt very gratuitous to me and it felt very kind of disturbing and unelegant in a way that sort of clashes with what I, what I felt the rest of the video was going for. Uh, yeah. It's the jaws aspect of it. Yeah. You know? Like the less you see of the shark, 
the scarier it is. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. And, and I personally, I, I had never thought that it, I always thought, it was always clear to me that what he did was kill himself and not the kids in the oh, class. Sure. Their eyes yeah. are still open no. and they're, they're, they're clearly just shielding themselves from the blood that's on their shirts. For and sure. Not. No, of course. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, but it's like, but, you know, that's the thing about, about art that perhaps Eddie was raging against the 93 <laughs> VMAs is no doubt. it's up to interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. And so once you put it in the world, you have zero control over how people interact with it mm-hmm. and react to it and, 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 you know, consume it. And so I think it's, it's unfortunate this video has this taint at all. I don't know if it does anymore because I think the story is kind of a copy of a copy of a copy at this point. Yeah, Nobody sure. it's, it's all part of the really legend at this point, it. yeah. But, um... You know, I think I think it's interesting that the band didn't make another video for six years mm-hmm. after that. And I think the next video they made was a, a animated video. I think it was Do the Revolution. Yeah, yeah from you um, to Do the Evolution, sure. Yeah, and so it's not because of that video. It's because they wanted to put the brakes on. But I think that, and they, they didn't really make a ton of videos even after that. You know, they've, no, they've done some over the years. But I think they realized that they they'd, you know, use the medium in a way that that helped them get to where they are and then they didn't really need it anymore which is which is something that really no other band has done in that way no other band that that really had huge success that way you know i mean even nirvana made videos until the end you know i mean and they were shrinking away as fast as kurt could but that's that's a weird move and it's an unusual move and it didn't really diminish their popularity at all in fact some some might argue that, you know, with the exception of the Foo Fighters, Pearl Jam is one of the biggest rock bands in the world still. I mean, they still sell out arenas and stadiums every time they, they leave the house. So I don't think, you know, there's any there's any diminishment of their legacy, you know, because of or, in, you know, the video and, and that that aspect of it. You know, I think, in fact, you know, it may have helped cement their legacy that they kind of went out on top of the really artful um, impactful video. So is, is there any other kind of final takeaways you have from this project? Any Anything that you now look at differently after having gone so deep into Jeremy and Trevor Wilson? Any, anything else that kind of lingers with you at this point? I, you know, I, it was just an interesting exercise in in really digging into a story that, that nobody had thought to tell or nobody looked into before. And, you know, I, I think you and I both know this from reporting that that there's these stories out there that you never hear because nobody thought to ask a question. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad I asked this question. I mean, you know, I never got to meet Trevor. You never got to meet Trevor. But I feel like in writing the story, we got to tell, you know, a really interesting slice of life story about somebody who was kind of a ghost, right? Yeah. Like a, a presence in our lives that we didn't know at all. And we knew from one moment in time, five minutes and 33 seconds or whatever it was, and then we never thought of again. And then here I have an opportunity to tell you as much as I could, you know, in the limited space and time that we have, what this person was about and, you know, what they did with the rest of their lives. And I think that's, it's a rare opportunity. And I, and I really, it made me appreciate the song more, it made me appreciate the band more. And it really made me appreciate the fact that we have this opportunity to, to tell these stories and to, and to find these stories. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, I think it's, that it's the reaction thing. to it, you know, the reaction to it that you and I, you and I have seen proves that there's something about this story that really uh, is compelling. 
and really grabs people. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And thank you so much for telling it. And thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, once again, if you haven't read it, uh, check out, you know, it's probably easily Googled, check out uh, Gil Kaufman's story of Trevor Wilson, kid from the Jeremy video, had a great life and uh, unfortunately left us last year. Uh, Gil, thank you so much and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon, man. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.